that. Um, <laughs> I think I, sh I shared that with you, I think, last time. I still have to tell her, I said, Hannah, red always means stop. She's, she's like 17, so she's learning how to drive, and she's got her L, and, and so the other, yesterday we were driving, and, and we are turning right, and oh, hopefully this isn't recorded. Um, <laughs> but, uh, and all the cars, they were just kind of assumed that they could turn right, but it was a red light, and so Hannah goes, oh, I can turn right, I don't need to stop. I said, no, it's red. I said, red always means stop, always, always, always. I said, that, that'll actually help you in the long run, <laughs> if you can remember that red always means stop. So my mic is working, that's good. Good to see everyone, good to see Derwin on the screen, that was kind of cool. I was impressed that he gave the whole announcement in three minutes with the big clock in the background. <laughs> we were all making sure he did it in one take. <laughs> I felt it a bit odd when he said good morning and it was one o'clock, but uh, <laughs> I shouldn't pay attention to those things. So um, I thought, you know, it's kind of a, it's the fall. It seems like summer is a distant memory. It's only a few weeks ago, but it seems like a long time ago. Um, I thought we would get centered going into the fall by looking at the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay, so that's actually where we're going to be focusing in on this morning. And uh, I, I call this message the, the center of the revolution. And because that's what the cross is, it's a revolution. Um, some of you know I used to live in... Uh, overseas, I used to live in, in China for many years. And in China, they would always uh, talk about... Um, this key event in Chinese history, which is um, liberation, which takes place in 1949. And so in, 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 in China, when you meet people, at least back when I lived there, uh, they would say things like this. They would talk about uh, um, liberation. They would say, which means before liberation, China was like this. After liberation, China was like this. And sometimes they would get a little carried away, they go, you know, Jefang Chen before liberation, we had no toilet paper. Jefang Yiho, we had toilet paper. You know, Jefang, before liberation, it was always cloudy. Jefang Yiho is always sunny. I'm like, really? I'm not sure about that. Um, <laughs> whoa. So, it's okay? Everybody all right? <laughs> I haven't heard anybody yell, ouch, yet, so I think we're okay. <laughs> well, one of the things we're going to look at today is how the cross is the most important revolution in all human history. Because a revolution, what does a revolution do? It overthrows an old order. It overthrows an old way of seeing things. And a revolution changes everything. And that is what the cross of Jesus Christ does. Do you believe this? Do you believe that the cross will change how you see your life? how you see the world, how you see um, what your days are supposed to be like. Do you believe that? I think many of you do, but some of you may not be so sure about this. What I'd like to talk about this morning is how the cross is, the center of the, is, is at the center of Christianity, and without the cross, you don't have Christianity. There's a guy named Jürgen Moltmann. He says, um, 
the inner criterion of whether or not Christian theology is Christian is a crucified Christ. The cross is a test of everything. But here's the thing. Not everybody wants the cross to be at the center of the Christian faith. And now this isn't new. Throughout history, there's always been movements of of people and um, church movements that have tried to downplay the cross, um, even back in the first century. In fact, we're going to find that in the passage that we're going to look at. So if you have a Bible, could you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2? So if you have it on a tablet or if you have old school, if you have a book, or somehow get to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Uh, I'm going to read verses 1 to 5. This is Paul, an early follower of Jesus Christ, and it's a letter that he wrote to a church in Corinth. And it's one of uh, a few letters, but uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 1 says this. And I, when I came to you, brothers and sisters, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not with plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So let's pray. Jesus, this is your word. We pray that you would speak into our hearts. I pray that you would speak through me um, this morning, Lord. We pray that you would soften hard hearts and give us ears to hear and eyes to see and the desire to respond to what you say to us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, keep your Bibles open, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, let me give you a little bit of background because it's important to know what's going on here. Paul, an apostle, an early follower of Jesus Christ, he's writing a letter to a church in Corinth. Now, we can't miss this point. He is writing to a Christian church. There are Christians in Corinth. There's a church that's being established in Corinth. Uh, Paul has established this church. And this church is full of people who would identify as Christians. They, they are influenced by Jesus. If asked, they would say, yes, we are Jesus' people. They meet regularly, as good churches do. There's preaching. There's worship. There's, uh, the congregation's pretty lively. There's lots of spirituality happening. There's lots of teaching. There's impressive teaching. So the church in Corinth is an impressive church. It's a growing church. It's, it's a church that has everything, but it has a fatal flaw, and Paul sees this. He sees this. And it's this flaw that actually causes Paul to write to them on more than one occasion. Now, Paul doesn't just write to them. If you've ever read 1 Corinthians, you'll know when Paul writes to, to the church in Corinth, especially 1 Corinthians, Paul writes with a lot of octane. <laughs> this is no book of Philippians. You know, book of Philippians, rejoice in the Lord again, I say rejoice. You know, Paul's in a good mood when he writes the book of Philippians. But in Corinth, there's something that's bothering Paul. And when Paul, is, 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 if you read the letter, it crackles. Right, he's got, he's, there's a lot of octane. There's an intensity in 1 Corinthians that you don't see in a lot of Paul's letters. So what is going on? What causes Paul to write with such an intensity to the church in Corinth? 
Well, the issue is that it's a church that thinks it could be Christian without the cross. That's what's going on in Corinth. And now, how do we know this? Well, we see this. There's evidence all throughout the letters. But in particular, Paul hones in on two things, two things that the the church in Corinth took pride in. You know what those two things are? Religious experience and spiritual insight. Now, it was true that if you wanted a religious experience, there was no better show in town than the church in Corinth. You would walk into the church in Corinth, and the first thing you would experience, the moment you walked in, was some pretty weird stuff going on. You would walk in, you hear this strange kind of language, what's going on? Turns out people are speaking in, speaking in tongues, right? And then you got people prophesying, you got people, you know, doing all, there's miracles, there's healings, there's all sorts of pretty strange stuff going on in Corinth. And so, in fact, the people in Corinth, the people in the church in Corinth, they were telling other people, man, it does not get better than Corinth. It does not get better than the church in Corinth. What we are experiencing in our church is the absolute fullness of the kingdom of God. It will not get better than what you're seeing in Corinth today. They thought that God's kingdom had fully arrived and was fully expressed in the church in Corinth. So, if you're living in the Greco-Roman world in the first century and you're looking for an exciting church, where would you go? Corinth, yeah, you go to Corinth, yeah. Now, here's the thing. You would get some pretty cool religious experiences in Corinth, but you would also get something else. You would get some pretty phenomenal teaching. The teaching in Corinth was very, very impressive. It was, it was nothing short than of, of wisdom. And, uh, and if you had any doubts on how impressive these teachers were, all you had to do was ask them, and they would tell you how impressive they actually were. Um, they, 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 this was a church that after church, what you would do is you'd go out into the foyer and you could buy all their books that they had written. You could download their MP3s and listen to their messages. I mean, this, this is good stuff, right? This is inspiring teaching. The, the, the leaders in Corinth were wiser than anyone else. And again, they would tell you if you, if, if you had any doubts. So if you're looking for a religious experience, where would you go? And if you're looking for a spiritual pick-me-up and inspirational teaching, where would you go? Corinth, yeah. It was a church that had everything except the cross. See, Paul's no dummy. Paul planted this church. And he knows that it's always a temptation for a church to drift and focus on everything Jesus see but leave out the cross. And so that's why Paul, what does he write? He says, I did not come to tell you something that you could have figured out on your own. I did not come to Corinth with some good solid advice or spiritual insights. I did not come with popular ideas about the mystery of the divine. I didn't come with human wisdom at all. Look what he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross 
of Christ be emptied of power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He says, where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of the world, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Listen to this. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews and folly to the Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Now, some of you may be thinking, okay, the cross, the cross. I get it. Yeah, the cross is pretty important. So they downplayed the cross. They still like Jesus. They still studied his teaching. What's the big deal? Well, it's a big deal. Now, there's lots of things that'll happen if you downplay the cross in the Christian faith. There's a lot of things that are going to happen if you downplay the cross in life, if you ignore it. Now, we just have time to look at two. We're going to look at two things. Two things that happens when you remove the cross from Christianity. Here's the first thing. First thing that's going to happen, if you remove the cross from your faith, your faith will be emptied of power. Your faith will have no power to transform you, to change you, and to make any difference to your life. So that's what Paul says. He says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, what is the cross? It's the power of God. It's the power of God. Now, if you were at the church in Corinth and you heard this and you'd say, what are you talking about, Paul? Power? <laughs> Have you not been to our services? We got power. Got a lot of power going on. There's, there's, <laughs> can you speak in tongues, Paul? We're speaking in tongues. Can you prophesy, Paul? We're prophesying. What are you talking about, power? We got power. In fact, I was thinking about this. We live in a world that likes to talk about power a lot. But if you think about our world today and you talk about power, where do you find power? Where's power found today? Think about Walt Disney. How would Walt Disney say, where's power found? Just look inside yourself when i lived in china they talked a lot about power because there's talk about this thing called qi qigong that's exactly how they did it too qigong no i'm just kidding um but they talk about moving power around and, and you know channeling power but in the west we talk about power where's power found just look deep inside yourself right just look inside yourself find the power within and unleash it so i did something that i shouldn't have done but I, I, I thought one day, I thought I'd Google power within, right? And uh, this, this, this guy shows up, this, this uh, pretty popular guy. I won't say Tony Robbins' name, but... Um, <laughs> so I read, so Tony Robbins shows up, this motivational speaker guy, and, uh, and, and he has a conference. It's called, and the conference is called... Unle yeah, the power within. Unleash the power within. It's a, a two-and-a-half-day con. I think he was just in town. I saw somebody on Facebook who had gone there. Um, yeah, so, 
And so the whole point of this conference, you know the problem when you look up something on Google? All my advertisements everywhere now is like, hey, Tony Robbins, all my news feeds, Tony Robbins coming. It's like, yeah, great. Um, we're told that this event is designed to help you unlock and unleash the forces inside that can help you break through any limit and create the quality of life you desire. He is a multi-million copy best-selling audio superstar. So unleash the power within. But that's not what Paul's talking about. When Paul's talking about power, he's not talking about 10 easy steps to a better you. He's not talking about unleashing or unlocking the power within. He's not interested in strategies to enable you to take control of your happiness. <laughs> Those are all actual talks, yeah. Um, what does he say? He says, we, we preach Christ crucified. We preach that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross is the center of the Christian faith. We preach that whenever the cross is removed or ignored, our faith is impotent and empty. Now, this is tough teaching. It is tough teaching. And so one of the problems with having you know, crosses everywhere and crosses around our neck and crosses every, you know, crosses and tattooed and is, is that we, we, we forget just how crazy this symbol is. We lose sense of how contrary to popular thinking is the idea of a crucified Savior. I don't have time to go into this, but, but the cross in the first century was a, it was a, it was a secular symbol. It was a symbol of politics. It was a symbol of, 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 of power. It was a symbol of, of incredible um, suffering. Like it was a gross, gross symbol, the cross. And so the cross is a hard sell. It was a hard sell in the first century. If we actually get our heads around it, it's a, it's a hard sell in our world today. Why is the cross so hard for us to, to, to embrace and to kind of fix on? Well, I think one of the reasons is that we'd rather be on the front foot in our spiritual lives. I think we'd much rather have good, you know, in, inspirational teaching than to be reminded that we are deeply, deeply sinful people. We'd rather have a religion that is tidy than a religion or than a faith that demands a lot from us. See, the cross is ugly. It is out of our control. The cross reminds us that power and wisdom are outside of us and this jars us, but there's no getting around this. That the climax of the entire Bible, if you read all the Gospels, all the Gospels, the climax of the story of Jesus is the cross. Everything is pointing towards the cross. That Jesus Christ, it was his mission to head to the cross. And though he was victim, arrested, though innocent, flogged, beaten, and nailed to a Roman cross, this is what stands at the center of the Christian faith. And this event actually stands at the center of human history. Do you believe that? Now, I'm going to get a little geeky. I have to tell you about church history, right? Is it okay? Because you know what? Church history is fun. Say that over and over again, and it becomes fun, right? <laughs> I have 62 students at Pacific Life Bible College tomorrow morning. I have to convince that church history is fun. So, at 8 o'clock in the morning. Uh, 
<laughs> I should have stood up when Lincoln was praying. Um, so here's the thing. There was a movement in the first century, in second century in particular, second and third century actually, um, that looked like it was Christian, smelled like it was Christian, talked like it was Christian, seemed like it was Christian, but was not Christian at all. But they kind of pretended that they were. And uh, it was a group that uh, liked deep knowledge. They liked special knowledge. Um, they liked the fact that some people had more knowledge than other people. Do you know what this group was called? The Gnostics. Yeah, the Gnostics. And um, they were a group that, it come, the word Gnostic comes from the word no. Gnosis is, is the word where we get the word uh, no. Um, they were people that said, yeah, we like Jesus, but we like Jesus the teacher. We like Jesus the divine teacher who imparts to us special knowledge of spiritual issues that some of us know and some of us don't. And so the Gnostics prided themselves to say, hey, you and I, we know about Jesus. <laughs> this guy doesn't know, right? Because we're kind of above other people. Like, so it's this kind of real focus on, 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 uh, on wisdom and knowledge and spirituality and also elevating yourself over others. Anyhow, it was a big movement. A lot of people were Gnostics and followed these Gnostics. Now, here's the thing. This is a, a popular movement. The Roman Empire left the Gnostics alone. Did not persecute them at all. Yeah, just let you guys do. Why? They're no threat. You guys just play your games, talk about your things, and read your books, and talk about you. You're no threat to us. Now, the Roman Empire went after the Christians. Why? They were a threat. Why were the Christians a threat? It's a number of reasons. One of the reasons that the Christians were saying, you know that person that by law, Caesar, you put to death? Yeah, well, he's not dead. And Caesar, you may think that you're Lord, <laughs> but you're not. The, the Lord, our Lord, the guy, you know, you put to death, politically you executed him, he's alive and he reigns forever, and he is actually Lord. And our allegiance, we don't care what you say, our allegiance is to the true Lord, not you. Okay, that's a political statement. And that's why the church ended up being persecuted. The Gnostics, you remove the cross from Christianity, you're no threat. Government will leave you alone. You see, the message of the cross is that you can't simply divide the world into spiritual and non-spiritual, wise and foolish, guilty and not guilty. What the cross tells us is, hey, every single one of us is in the same boat. That we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The cross reminds us <laughs> that our sin is ugly. You want to know how, how ugly your sin is? Look to the cross. Look what it cost. And it's so hard to hear that the Corinthians avoided it. And nobody likes to hear the fact that we bring nothing to the table. Nothing. That we desperately need to be rescued. And that is why the cross is called the scandalon. It's a scandal. But scandalon means what? Does anybody know? It's a stumbling block. 
it's a stumbling block because people trip over it all the time. How can a man beaten, brutalized, bleeding, nailed to a cross make any difference to my life, honestly? And that's why so many people throughout history have been revulsed by the cross. One of my favorite teachers is a guy named John Stott. Um, and this is what he writes. It's really interesting. John Stott, he's a British um, pastor, went to pastor at All Souls Church in London. He says this. He says, quote, I've entered many Buddhist temples in different Asian countries, and I've stood respectfully before the statue of Buddha, his arms crossed, legs crossed, eyes closed, ghost of a smile playing around his mouth. Each time after a while, I've had to turn away. And in my imagination, I've turned instead to that lonely, twisted, tortured figure on the cross, plunged in God-forsaken darkness. That's God for me. He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, tears and death. There's still a question mark against human suffering, but over it we boldly stamp another mark, the cross, which symbolizes divine suffering. See, I mean, the thing about the cross is it reminds us, and I've said this over and over again, I know I've said it here many times, the cross reminds us that the God we worship gets it. He gets suffering. He's not on some cloud far away with his eyes half closed and telling you, you know what, your suffering is just an illusion, don't worry, it'll... The cross reminds us that suffering is part of life. But the cross reminds us two important things. One is that the God we worship, he understands it and will meet us in our suffering, right? But because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we also know that in our suffering that the worst thing we experience will not be the last thing. The last thing will be life, eternal life. And I don't know about you, that's a game changer. It is the power of God, Paul reminds us. The Spirit of God opens our eyes and reminds us that the one who hangs on the cross is the Son of God who loved us so much that he took our punishment. He took the penalty that belonged to us upon himself to set us free. Now, we live in a world that still is okay with the idea of God or likes the idea of the transcendent. But you go to work on Monday and you start talking about the J word. You start mentioning Jesus. Imagine some of you going to work on Monday. And you're at your, let's say you have a morning meeting to get the week going and just say, oh, before we get started, you know, I was thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ. And just how that's the center of all history and that our lives will only make sense insofar as they're in sync with the author and perfecter of our faith, the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last, beginning and the end, Jesus Christ, that only in Him will we live. What do you think, guys? How will that go over? See, the reason why the church in Corinth and churches today are so messed up is that they've tried to be Christian without the cross. Paul sees this and it burns within them. Now, just one last thing. One last thing. We talked about how without the cross, our faith is emptied of power to transform us. It won't make any difference in our life. You can, you can be a Christian, but without the cross, you're just playing games. It's just a philosophy. It's a worldview, but it's not going to make any difference in your life. 
The second thing is this. Without the cross, you and I will struggle to love our neighbor. Because in Corinth, underneath all the glitter, all the miracles, all the religious experience, all the supposedly wise teaching, Paul knows, he knows what's going on there. What's going on in Corinth? Everybody is fighting. You read through First uh, and Second Corinthians, there's, fight, there's all sorts of factions. There's backbiting, there's gossip. <clears throat> and Paul sees this. And he basically says, you want to know why you're struggling to love one another? You want to know why, you know, you've become a church where people stand by themselves in the foyer and nobody talks to them? You want to know how you became a church where, you know, the rich uh, eat well and the poor go hungry? You want to know why you're so messed up? You've forgotten the cross. You're trying to be Christian without the cross because, I mean, you guys know this passage if you've been to a wedding, you know, you know 1 Corinthians 13. If you've been to a wedding, you've heard it, right? Love is gentle, love is kind, love is kind. You know, it's always read at, at, um, at weddings, which is fine. But where's 1 Corinthians found? Not a trick question. Yeah, between which two chapters? 12 and 14, right? Yeah, 1 Corinthians 13 is found between 12 and 14. Now, there's a reason for that. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is all about spiritual gifts and a lot of the, you know, people wanting to have higher spiritual gifts and, you know, I want, you know, I have the gift of healing. This person just has the gift of administration because nobody cares about that. You know, those sorts of things, right? The, you know, this hierarchy and, and, and chapter, in the speaking in tongues and then chapter 14 is about people speaking in tongues and prophecy and people fighting. Paul says, here's the thing. You Corinthians... You, you can speak in tongues till the cows come home. If you do not have love, you're just making a lot of noise. Right? You could prophesy. You could pick the next four World Cup winners. Right? You could, you could prophesy everything. But if you don't have love, who cares? And so that's the whole point of 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It's just basically saying... You know, you're trying to live a life. You're trying to live a life without the love that God has shown on the cross. And if you try to live a life without the love of God shown on the cross, all you're doing is making a lot of noise. You can unleash the power within, but without love, you're just a conference that comes to town and leaves, right? See, when you and I learn to live our lives in the cross, we learn to live. Not only do we learn to live, but we learn to love. Why? Because it was on the cross where we learned how deep the Father's love for us was. And this love transforms us. Because we can love. Why? Because He first loved us. Right? He first loved us. Now, I'm going to do one last geeky thing about church history. Is that okay? I probably have shared this. I mean, I've been here long enough that you're like, okay, I've heard this story about four times, David. Um, um, now, some of you know that, um, you know, I've, I've done some studying in the past, and one of the things I studied, um, I, I was doing a, doing a doctorate down in the States, um, and the, the, the area that I focused was church history. And in particular, I looked at revivals, Right? Revive that. Every now and then, throughout church history, 
God chooses at different times to blowtorch his church like it just comes alive and it gets, you know, there's revivals that break out in churches. This affects other churches. This actually affects the countryside. It affects cities, right? So the guy that I studied is um, a guy that nobody's ever heard of. And I think I've shared him with you before. His name's John Barrage. Anybody hear of John Barrage? Hands up. Yeah. What's that? Yeah, there you go. <laughs> if anybody's ever heard of John Barrage, it's, it's because I've mentioned it. But if you have heard of John, so he's a great guy to study because nobody's ever heard of him, right? And so I can say whatever I want in my paper. Um, <laughs> so John Barrage, he lived uh, near um, Cambridge. Have I told you the story of John Barrage yet? Have I? No? Okay. I, I'm, 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 I'm sensitive. I don't want to repeat myself. Okay, hit the next slide. I'm pointing up here. Okay, there's Barrage's church, and it's near um, Cambridge in a small town called Everton. Okay? It's the, not the big Everton up north. This is a small town called Everton near uh, Cambridge. So John Barrage is a pastor. So he graduated from Cambridge, uh, St. Clair's College, and he goes off, and he didn't know what to do with life, and so he becomes a pastor. The problem is is he wasn't a Christian. But it was the olden days. You could do that, right? Um, he just went and he was, he was preaching in, in, in um, Everton, but he wasn't a Christian. And so, but he had to say something when he was preaching. So like, what do you say when you're not a Christian and you're preaching? Ah. So this is what he would do. Every week he would go to the congregation and he'd say to them, he says, You need to love one another. You need to be kind. I know he sounds like he's from Australia. He might be from Australia. <laughs> no? <laughs> he said, so he'd say to the congregation, he goes, you need to be kind. You need to love one another. Love. And everybody in the congregation, <sighs> sound asleep. Every week he'd do this. Um, you need to do good things. You need to be nice. You need to be loving. You need to, you need to, everybody sound asleep. Nobody paid attention. Now this started to bother Barrage because he's been preaching every week and everybody's sound asleep. Nobody's listening to him and he's getting frustrated. Doesn't know what to do. So he goes home one day and he does something that he had never done before. He prayed. He actually prayed. And he prays this question. He, he prays to God. He says, God, what am I doing wrong? <laughs> I need help. And God spoke to him, and he said these words. Cease from your own works. Basically, stop trying so hard and trust in what I've done through my son on the cross. Because it's the cross that matters. So Barrage, he goes back to church the next Sunday. And he looks at his congregation, he goes, you need to trust in Jesus. You need to turn to the cross. Nothing you can do will matter. Nothing you can bring to the table matters. You need to turn to Jesus, and he will forgive you, and then you'll live. And this old lady comes up after the service. She goes, well, what's, this, what's this new, new manner of preaching, Reverend David? I've never heard this before. And he goes, I know. God spoke to me last night. So he begins preaching this way. Well, people are awake. More people start coming. Well, hey, 
Before you know it, he's starting to preach in the fields. 3,000, 4,000, 5,000, 6,000. Huge crowds. And it's the beginning of what is called the Cambridgeshire Revival. Huge revival that spreads all, and it lasts for about a year. And Barrage is, is at the center of this. And one of the things I've, I've studied over the years is that in revivals, what's kind of the common ingredient? One of the common ingredients is the recovery of the cross. Is when we rediscover the cross, well, then stuff happens. Not only in our own lives, but in our churches and in our communities. Now, I'm laying that out because I think this is, if we're going to see any change in our lives, we need to come back to the cross. I remember Billy Graham saying, revival begins here, begins with himself. But this is a truth that will transform your life. The cross will transform your life, your marriage, your family. It'll transform your church. It'll transform Coquitlam. Could even transform Canada. And no amount of inspirational teaching or religious experience will accomplish this. Now, I had a buddy of mine when I was back at uh, Regent College, when I worked at Regent. And I remember I was a fairly new Christian at the time. And uh, something happened to me, and I see this happen to Christians all the time. Tell me if you recognize this. A lot of people, when they come to faith, they come to faith because they're told about grace. They're told about the cross, and they come to faith. And it's such an exciting moment. But then very shortly after that, people started thinking, wow, boy, God, God saved me. I guess I better step up and start you know, living Christianly and, and uh, better start doing some good things. And then we mess up. And we think, oh, God must be so mad. I mean, he did all this stuff for me on the cross and he died for my sins. And, and this is the way I, I, I repay him and I mess up. And we get disappointed. And then we start thinking, oh, well, maybe if I do some more good things, then God will get, I'll get back on God's good side. And we start doing that. And before you know it, we start wearing masks we start, because we don't feel like doing these good things, but we think we ought to do these good things. And so we start living double lives. And then we just get frustrated. And then we just think, you know, God's mad at me. And I'm done. Now, I'll tell you, I can't meet, tell you how many Christians I meet who go, go through this. When I was a young Christian, I remember kind of feeling guilty and messing up. And, and my friend, we're just unpacking books together, and he kind of just said, he doesn't even look at me. He goes, yeah, he goes, good thing that our starting point is always the throne of grace. I'm like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Um, and that's our starting point. Because of the cross, our starting point is that you and I are holy and blameless in God's sight because of not what we've done, but because of the cross. And so our starting point in the Christian life, our starting point is always grace. We can boldly approach the throne of grace, accept it as an adopted daughter or adopted son of God, right? So we need to hold on to that. I think that's all I have. <laughs> let me uh, pray, and I think we'll sing a song in response. Yeah, we got time? All right, let me pray. Jesus, we thank you for the cross. You're not a philosophy, you're not a worldview, you're not an idea, but you are personal and you're present and you inhabit our praises. You live in our lives by uh, the Holy Spirit and you are in the business of transforming us more and more into your likeness. 
We thank you for the cross because the cross reminds us that we, we bring nothing to the table, that the ground is completely level at its foot, that all of us have sinned and fall short. All of us have stuff in our hearts that's just not good. And yet you took the penalty that belonged to us and you died the death that we should have died. But you did not stay dead. You were raised to new life. And now you have purchased our life. And through faith in you, giving our life to you, we live and we begin to live the lives that we were created and redeemed to live. And our starting point is always grace. Our starting point is always responding to your love. So thank you. And we want to sing your praises in response. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing in. Now, just before uh, we conclude, you know, I forgot one picture. I, I want to just conclude. Uh, can you put that last picture? Um, see, this is, uh, that's me. Um, that is where John Barrage was buried. And I, I just want to say one thing about this. Barrage actually writes on his epitaph a message to people who are coming by. Two things he did. He says when he died, he wanted to be buried where, where the uh, thieves and the robbers and the people without names were buried. He says, because who am I? Secondly, on there, it's kind of funny because he wrote, he says, I was a pastor for a long time and then I fled to Jesus. And, and the Church of England said, you can't write that. Well, he wrote it. Anyhow. And, but his whole life spoke. His whole life. And it still speaks today of the wonder of the cross. And so as you leave this place, may you live such a cross-centered, Christ-filled life that people know of the grace of Jesus Christ through how you live your life. And may you be a, um, a conduit of God's grace. And may a revival begin not just in you, not just in this church, but in the city of Coquitlam. So go and live cross-centered lives. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Go in His grace.